Once again, it's crummy, rotten, miserable Monday day. Here, bring it up there. Bring it up, big gun. Oh, what a sad story here. What a sad story. We have a note here that a pedigreed white terrier named Charlotte ate uh, 123 pills of the kind of pills that everybody's writing about these days. And it seems that her puppies are worth up to $70 each, and there ain't going to be any this year. Well, <laughs> you meddle with full around with nature, you'll ever wind up with all kinds of stuff on your hands. You know they tried the pill on uh, pigeons in uh, Philadelphia? And they didn't work. As a matter of fact, uh, somehow it turns out that the pill was an aphrodisiac to pigeons. And there was more whoopee down around the city hall than you'd want to shake a stick at. I see. Hey, I see we finally come full circle. It just had to come. I, um, a couple years ago, I predicted this, and, and uh, nobody believed, at least of all me. And uh, we finally come full circle. I see in the paper over the weekend where an artist is making up to $15,000 a crack now, and he doesn't even do his art. He just thinks of it. And uh, you buy the idea from him, and if you want him to make it, that costs an extra $10,000. He just thinks good thoughts for you. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of bringing that concept here into WOR. I'm going to negotiate with the management here that I have grown so much in stature and so much in technique that no longer do I find it feasible to actually do my show. But I'm beyond that, and uh, if they want to negotiate with me, I'll think good shows for them. And they can put on, say, old tapes of John Gambling or something in my regular time, but I'll think of these good shows, and then if they want to renegotiate, I'll charge them extra for actually doing them, which comes on top of that. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a new concept. Have you noticed that, that uh, there are large numbers of people in show business who don't actually do what they were famous at one time for doing? They're now perpetual guests. How long has it been since you've seen a movie with Zsa Zsa Gabor in it? It's going to be a long time. I'll tell you that. Don't hold your breath. She is a perpetual guest. Uh, uh, Tom Poston, he's a guest. He just makes, uh, he's, he's just a guest, that's all. Uh, he no longer acts in plays or any of that stuff. He just appears every couple of days as famous actor who's now our special... Speaking of special guests, can, can any of you explain this to me now? There's a whole new uh, language coming in into the world of uh, the TV fan. He, ex he understands this. I do not necessarily understand it. Let's say uh, I go to a movie, which I did last week, and I see this movie. It says, uh, movie starring Jimmy Stewart and, uh, we'll say, Ursula Andress. They're being starred. It says, uh, co-starring uh, Tab Hunter. And then there's another line. It says, special 
guest star, Frank Watanabe. Now, how can you be a special guest star in a movie? That's just a... I'm just asking a question. Does that mean the next time they make that movie, he won't be there? He just, you know, he's a guest in this movie this time. <laughs> I'm just a question. And these things are accepted so uh, completely unquestioningly that I, I'm just, uh, you know, I have to get straightened out once in a while. Am I a special guest star on my show tonight? Or am I a star at all? Because there's nobody else in my show. It's, uh, oh, oh, by the way, I found out another thing, too, about about radio listings and about all this stuff. You know where they say radio highlights? Have you ever seen this in the paper? Radio highlights? Well, every radio highlight that's listed is somebody interviewing somebody else. In other words, it'll say, Radio Highlight Today, uh, Long John interviews Whoopi the Wonder Dog, uh, who tells about his new movie. And then uh, it'll say, uh, Special Radio Highlight Today, Barry Farber interviews Archie the Cockroach, who talks about his new movie. And then it'll say, uh, Barry Gray today interviews uh, uh, Charlie the Horse, who writes about his famous uh, book, talks about his book, uh, uh, Decadence at Yonkers. And uh, this, <laughs> you know, this goes on. And, and by the way, speaking of decadence at Yonkers, you know, one of the saddest sights in the world, I, at least to me, I'm driving past the Yonkers Raceway the other day, and it's bright sunlight. It's, it's daytime, see? The temperature stands at about four degrees above zero. And the wind is howling from somewhere just this side of Greenland. It's, it's whistling past. And I'm driving past Yonkers, and I see the stands. You know, when you go past Yonkers, you can see the, the, the uh, big stands there, and you can look right into them. And here are a bunch of guys sitting in there with their sheepskin coats on, waiting for the first race, which will not be for some hours hence. And I mean some long, cold, frosty hours hence. And they're sitting out there. Nothing else to do in the world but sit in an empty grandstand at the Yonkers Raceway and, and wait for horses who are not about to show up for the next five hours. I've always felt horse players are among the saddest of people. Among the... the uh, these, are the uh, these are the people who have to search for artificial conflict in their world. They have none in their own world. They have no, uh, most of them have no uh, conflict at all. Just the, where to get up the scratch. That's about the end of the conflict. Where to get the scratch to put it on the third. And they sit hour after hour waiting for real life to begin. The minute that little gate goes up, boing, ah, they're off. That's their existence for two and a half minutes. And, you know, speaking of real life uh, uh, conflicts, I, I'm, I'm standing back of a guy the other day on the Horn and Harder. We're in the coffee line, see? And uh, he's got his sleeve rolled up. He's come from someplace next door where he's working. And I see this big heart on his arm. It's tattooed on there. And the heart says Emma. Emma and Joe. And there's a, there's a little arrow through it. And he's got uh, an anchor over the heart. Obviously, this guy got tattooed one time. And I looked at that tattoo. And I looked at him. And I wondered whether he was still going with Emma or whether he was still carrying on some ridiculous tattoo all the rest of his life for some chick he can't even remember. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I had this vague feeling of fear, a real fear that went through me, because I came so close one time to being tattooed with the name of a girl whose name I still remember. I couldn't recognize this chick today if you brought her to me stuffed and in a glass case. I could not recognize her. And I came within about uh, 
I would say five minutes of being forever tattooed with this chick. Would you please bring me some hairy tattooed music there, if you will, Don? This is tattoo music. This is the world of the tattoo parlor. And incidentally, no one has ever discovered why they call uh, a tattoo area, why it is called a tattoo parlor. What goes on? Have you ever been in a tattoo parlor? Hey, Mike. Hey, what's going on in here? What's the trouble? Mike, have you ever been in a tattoo parlor? Have you? Have you ever thought of getting tattooed? Once. Aren't you happy? Aren't you glad it didn't happen? Let me... I wonder if women ever get the urge to get tattooed. No. That's a male thing. <laughs> All right. Cut it out. Listen to this. The reason I brought this up, somebody sent this note to me from the AP. And uh, do, you, do you sense the tremendous disillusionment and cynicism that runs through the comments made by this guy? It says, after more than 50 years in the, skill, in the skin trade, Gib Thomas is an expert on the twists and turns of public tastes and tattoos. Sanctity is out. Satanism is now in. And we're quoting old Gib here. He says, the trend is now toward the hideous. The most popular design of all of them, the one that everybody who comes in here wants, is the devil. I put a thousand devils on them for every head of Christ. I have not done a crucifixion in over five years. Everybody thinks he's a rebel. That's one of the better lines of our age. Everybody thinks he's a rebel. And you know, that takes many forms. A guy that'll buy Mark Lane's book thinks he's a rebel. A guy will go out and he'll buy an LP by Lenny Bruce. And he thinks he's saying it when he puts it on his stereo hi-fi. Everybody, <laughs> oh yeah, there are people who think they're rebels because they buy the realist. You know, everybody thinks he's a rebel, and I, I, uh, I, I see them. Or every, I'd say out of every letter that I get, there are at least six out of ten people, and it makes no difference where they live. They live in nice places like Short Hills, Darien. They all talk about the they. They talk about society. If society is not in Darien, where the hell is it? You know, just a question. If society is not them, who is it? Where is it? And, and Gibb goes on to say here, he's uh, 66 years old. He stared over the waxy ends of his wispy mustache and said, some of the things I put on people, I wouldn't have on me if I had all the room in the world. He has no room. He ran out of it 30 years ago when he was a tattooed man traveling with circuses and road shows. Tattooing is not like it used to be, Thomas said. In his day, he scrawled last wills and testaments on the backs of businessmen. Can you imagine having your last your will? What, what happens if you want to change your will, you know? And you got a tattoo on your behind. <laughs> he, he's placed discreetly placed identification marks under the arms of FBI men, and that isn't all. Uh, Armel Dietzel, that's his partner, and I have covered more people for exhibition than any two people in the United States. Times have changed, he said. A few calls is all you get every day. His last major job was on a man named Iwo Jima Eddy. 
The raising of the flag on Mount Suribachi in four colors is now engraved on Eddie's back. Most of Thomas's clients are sailors on the town from nearby Great Lakes, but all kinds come. He is unimpressed by his clientele. Listen to what a tattoo man has to say about the people who comes. 50% of the people who come in here can't spell their, their own name, and they can't even spell their wife's name. He says they'll bring her in with them, and they'll turn around and they say, Hey, honey, how do you spell your name? Even if I know, I don't tell them. That's between him and her. I am not Cupid. Ignorance is inexhaustible, as Thomas tells it. A heart with a dagger through it is always a good design. People come in here and they get them put on with their wives or their girlfriend's name. Have you seen that one with the heart with the dagger? He says, the heart with the dagger is a Japanese design and it means death. But they don't realize that. They just want it on. Thomas admits to being bored by it all and he's going out of the business after 50 years. He says, tattooing is not only dying, but founding fathers all over the country are putting tattooers out of business. They're forcing them out of the country. It's ridiculous. If sailors don't get tattooed here, they're going to get tattooed in Hong Kong. So what's the difference? There'll always be a demand for tattoos, he said. But why get tattooed? You never ask a customer why, replied Thomas. I'm not a doctor. I'm not out to judge them. I just put them on them. I mean, how's that for a line? He just puts it on him. And, you know, I remember one time. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't know whether anybody you know will ever concede or admit. Speaking of the cynics of the world, this is WOR, AM and FM in New York. And let's see, we got Rover with us, the Rover 2000 TC. And uh, are you aware that one of the more popular designs in the last 10 years among tattooists are guys getting the name of their car tattooed on their back? How do you like that for sickness? No, it's true. I'm not kidding. Uh, guys become so identified with this crummy heap that they drive that they are more identified with this thing than they are with the chicks they go around with. And so many a guy is far more in love with his GTO Pontiac than he is with Mabel, who rides on the front seat with him. So obviously when he goes into a tattoo parlor, he's not going to get Mabel written on him. He's going to get GTO, you know, or, or a Mustang all over his behind. And <laughs> if, you're, if you're looking for something that has real class to get tattooed on your forearm, I suggest you try Rover 2000 TC. Then you'll be a man of taste and sensibilities. It's a fine English car. Uh, we would suggest that if you'd like to see pictures of it first, send us a card to Rover here at WOR, and we'll take care of it. You know, I, I remember the one horrible night, one fantastic night, when, when men are alone, let me, put the, let me put it this way. Men alone are very different from women alone. And when I say men alone, I mean men uh, kind of kept out of society. They're very different from women who are kept away from society. I suspect because women are far more self-involved. Uh, women, yeah, women, women can be totally involved with themselves and really not miss the world much. And, uh, they, uh, yeah, the idea of an old maid is a far more common concept in our world than uh, an old bachelor. There are far more old maids than old bachelors. And they can become totally uh, nestified. You know, they build a nest, and they live in this nest, and they don't miss the world. But let me tell you, when you're in the Army or in the Navy or in some 
area of life where you're totally separated from the rest of the world, you begin to think uh, in, in channels that as a member of society, you just don't think. You just never do. And I suspect that one of the things about putting a uniform on that does to guys is that it sheds that last vestige of identification off of them. And they become just a guy in a suit. They become a soldier or a sailor. Have you noticed we describe soldiers and sailors by that noun? You don't describe them as a man in the army or a guy in the navy. He's called a soldier or a sailor. And therefore, he's really not a man in the navy or a man in the army. He becomes a third creature, a soldier or a sailor. And I know, you know, you, uh, I'm three years in, so I know something about it. And you put, you put this suit on, oh, it's a, it's, the first time you put it on, you feel uncomfortable in it. You feel like you're dressing up or you're, you're in a play or some ridiculous thing. And you put this suit on, it's got brass buttons. You're not used to wearing brass buttons in real life, you know. Brass button that has a couple of little gold stripes on the side or... It has uh, a button on the, on the lapel. It says Signal Corps. It has a little button that says Infantry. You put this silly little hat on, this funny little thing. It's got braid around the top of it. And for about the first 20 minutes, you feel very ridiculous in it. And then after that, you begin to feel like, uh, you know, it's kind of a jazzy thing you're wearing. And then gradually you forget it. Totally. And it becomes your skin. It's another skin, completely. And it's totally identified with you. And because you only have a few pieces of clothing in the Army, do you know how many pieces of clothing actually a guy in the Army has? Well, they're, they're all written down on what they call his Form 32. Now, most people in life have got five closets of junk that they don't wear, that they've got. They bought it last year. They bought it two years ago. But it's all part of them, and they know somehow back in the back of their mind that if they wanted to wear this ridiculous thing, that they bought two years ago and they can't figure out why the hell they ever bought it, they can do it. It's there. Now, you may only wear eight or nine pieces of clothing regularly, you know, rotate, and you still have, though, that extra hundred or fifty or twenty. But in the Army, no. This is it. You've got two OD uniforms, and they, they look exactly alike. No difference. One may be a little frayed around the bottom, but they're exactly alike. You have uh, two sometimes three suntan shirts, and they look exactly alike. You have two pair of shoes, two pair of shoes, and that's it, and they are identical. You have uh, three suits of underwear, and they're identical. You have two ties, identical. And everybody in the barracks has the same stuff. So it's not a matter of you just having a gray suit and the next guy's got blue suits. I mean, everybody's identical. And so then, when you put these things out, and you go out on the town, you go walking along. Let's say you go walking along the boardwalk in Asbury Park. There are a thousand other guys walking along. You can see their backs up ahead of you. And behind you, you see other guys, all dressed exactly like you. Each one of you is a soldier or a sailor. And girls look at you that way. There's a certain opaqueness in the eye. You know what I mean, Mike? Uh, yeah, really, it's a certain, you are a sailor, you are a soldier. And it doesn't make any difference what rank you have, I mean, just, you're just in that suit, that's all. Well then, what develops within a short time after you've been in the Army or the Navy? You develop the opaqueness in the eye, too. 
which is a form of defense, see? And so you look at all the girls you see as girls. I mean, <laughs> they're no longer Myrtle. They're no longer uh, Dorothy. They're girls, just like you're a soldier. And so there is a mutual opacity, a mutual uh, no contact. Well, one night, I am out with Gasser, and it's a cold, windy night. We are in Long Branch, New Jersey. Have you ever heard of Long Branch, New Jersey? Any of you? Well, do you know what Long Branch, New Jersey is on a cold, windy Friday night when nothing but the flickering neon sign of beer halls and pizza parlors light up that cold, gray world? Long Branch, right by the sea, and the wind blows in hour after hour, and you can hear the waves go shh. It's Long Branch. And you can smell the paint peeling off that, that sad little boardwalk that they've got there in Long Branch. And, and you can see the beer cans half buried in the sand down there as you peer into the darkness. And the street lights kind of are yellow. I remember Long Branch vividly. And every night, we would go into Long Branch, me and Gasser. It was the closest place to this hovel that we were living in, this tent. We'd go into Long Branch. We'd go down and have, a, have some spaghetti. We'd go to the Italian restaurant and have some ravioli. Or we'd have some pizza. Or we would go in and we'd have some fish. Or we'd go... They had these games you'd play there. With the big wheels. You remember the wheels would spin? God only knows what would have ever happened had we won. I don't know exactly what I would have done with a large pink and blue panda that I would take back to the tent. <laughs> but we'd play these games. And once in a while, we'd take these, these, uh, these lead baseballs that you throw at bottles. We'd throw those. And we'd wander around the town, around Long Branch, and the wind is howling through those streets. It's late in the fall when the itch is on the, is on the tree. And you feel this vague sense of not being part of anything and not even wanting to be part of anything. And across the street, you'd see girls moving around occasionally. Long Branch girls who looked at us with that same look of girls who had lived in a, in a, in a military town all of their lives. You know, that's a special kind of girl. A girl who lives in a town where all forever there are soldiers and sailors. Just forever. I don't mean just occasionally, but forever. And so they look upon all soldiers and sailors with a special look. We'd see them across there. They'd see us. We'd drift into the Long Branch USO and play ping pong and out into the night again with this eternal itching, this scratching, looking for something to do. And every night, we would walk past this little narrow place set between a pizza joint and a place where you throw baseballs at these lead milk bottles. There it was. Gus's tattooing parlor and Gus sat in there every night and looked out at us Gus looked a little like Sidney Greenstreet and if you can imagine a Sidney Greenstreet who had been really debauched at one time in his life I mean if you can imagine a Sidney Greenstreet without humor a Sidney Greenstreet with only the evil left without the style and he'd sit in there with this great big shirt a great big heavy guy on a big shirt he always wore these blue work shirts and they had the, usually a little ketchup up and down the front. And Sidney would look out at us, and we'd look in at him. And all over the walls were these fantastic pictures. Have you ever been in one of these parlors? Well, they have all the stuff you can get. You can get tattooed on you, all strung around the walls. There'd be ships sinking. There's daggers with smoke coming out of them. 
There are revolvers with smoke coming out of them. There are hearts. You can get purple ones. You can get green ones. You can get hearts with blue fringe on them. You can get the anchors, about 4,000 different types of anchors. You can get symbolic signs of all kinds, swastikas even. You can, yeah, all this stuff is there. Ancient Indian signs of good luck. You can get many things. And he has special books laid to one side. If you really want something ripe tattooed on you, he has a special book of very ripe signs and symbols taken apparently from the ancient Indian rites. He's got, he's got, oh yeah, you know that there are guys, I'll bet, you know, even, even to this day, I'm sure, as I walk down around places like, you know, fancy uh, east side restaurants, I see all these guys that have made it. They're sitting there and they've got their credit cards and their ad agency executives and some of them have these distinguished graying sideburns. But each one of them, somewhere in the past, was a soldier or a sailor. And I'd like to know what some of them have got tattooed under their Brooks Brothers suit. You know, under that, under that expensive shirt, you take it off and there is an absolutely unprintable obscenity between their shoulder blades. And, and, and no, nobody, nobody around them knows why Charlie prefers to wear two-piece bathing suits. <laughs> they never see his shoulder blades because of what he's got there. And he keeps threatening from time to time, you know, to go in and have it removed. But that's like having half your hide removed, so he's not going to do it very soon, you know. And I'm just curious how many guys thought of, at any one given time, thought of going in and having it done really having it done. And I suspect that one of the things that does it to you is this peculiar, creeping, windy, water-washed, sand-laved boredom that almost every yard bird, almost every swabby has felt throughout most part of his lives. And it's not only boredom. It's coupled with a, pu a peculiar kind of the hell with all of those, meaning all the rest of the people's attitudes. Yeah, you get to feel... It's, it's like as if... Can you imagine being in a walking jail? That's really what it's like to be in the Army or the Navy. I mean, you, you, you can walk around, you can go down and buy a Coke, or you can go into the tavern and buy a beer. But no matter where you go, you're separate. It used to bug me to go into a bar. Some guy would come up and say, Hey, soldier! Ah, boy, hey, soldier, have a beer on me! What do you mean, hey, soldier, have a beer on me? Somehow, he meant it well. But the mere fact that you were always, hey, soldier, have a beer on me. Yeah, no, no GI comes in here. His money is no good here. We'll buy him a beer. So what do you mean my money isn't any good? I earned it, you know, all $32 of it. Boy, and how I earned it. And so you drift in and out of these places, and you, 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 you search for places where you can stop being a soldier. Have you wondered why a lot of guys go swimming in that while they're in the Army and the Navy? Well, you strip off this stuff and you put on a pair of blue shorts and you swim in the surf with everybody else and all of a sudden you're not an army man. You're not a sailor. And you're, you're, just, you're just somebody else. You're just the person, see. But you can't kid yourself. Because way down deep in your soul you can hear the sound of dog tags rattling. Dog tags eternally rattling, dinging together. Hey, you know I still have my dog tags? I still have got them. And the dog tags have got that little notch on the bottom of them. Do any of you know what that notch is for? That's right. Mike knows. <laughs> Boy. And they issue... Yeah. You don't know what that is? That's right. 
That little notch is in, is in the dog tag. And that, that notch that has my non-existent religion stamped on it. And all the other things. <laughs> that, that number. And so, uh, as the G.I. walks around, you see, he, he searches. I don't think many guys, I, I doubt very much, whether many civilians have ever gotten tattooed. Because the desire to be tattooed is not there. The reason for it. Why a man... Because I think tattooing is largely a gesture of defiance. A gesture of defiance. And at the same time, it's a vague, weak movement towards gaining some kind of an identity that sets you apart from the rest. Sure, figure it out now here for a minute. If everybody's wearing the same underwear, if everybody's wearing the same shirt where you live, if everyone wears the same coat, and you take it all off and you go into the shower and you look like everybody else, even when the water is pouring down on the top of your head. You're just this little flotsam, this little bit of jetsam of humanity. But if you have a fantastic 45 caliber multiple automatic semi-gas-operated pistol, <laughs> all over, yeah, or, or whatever it might be, you know, you've got something tattooed on you. You've got the Graf Zeppelin tattooed on the back of your head or something. Somehow... <laughs> You stand out. You know, people say, wow, the Graf Zeppelin. You say, yep, Graf Zeppelin. They say, holy smoke, why that? You say, it's my own business. You have your own little, <laughs> you know, it's some kind of a mystic symbol. There it is. Well, well, I, I one night, though, I'll, this, this is the night. This is the night. I, I can't, uh, can't get away from it. Gasser and I have been drifting in and out of Long Branch now for about four months, every night. And during the day... We are subjected to such boredom as you could never comprehend as a civilian. The, uh, the, oh, no, the civilian thinks he's bored in his life. Many people do. And I can only say that never have I ever known a civilian to get nearly as dynamically bored. If you can imagine boredom as a dynamic quantity, it's, it's a substance. It's, uh, it's kind of like uh, another element, you know, like iron and coal. It's like a tin. I mean, it's, it's, it's palpable. You can feel it. And we were in this company, Company K, and we were going through a long transitional period between training, and we were assigned to nothing but details all day long. And our company was slowly going out of its skull, completely going mad. Our, our, our orders to be shipped wherever we were going had not arrived. Our equipment had not arrived. And so we were in this backwash of the army at, at Fort, or Camp Leonard Wood, which is a suburb and a slum of Fort Monmouth. <laughs> and, I mean, a genuine slum. And every day we would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning. The cannon would go off somewhere in the distance. And you'd hear the wind playing over the top of the canvas roof. You'd just hear that steady sound of the wind roaring over the top of the canvas the canvas tent. We'd get up and it would be cold. The temperature would be always somewhere like 34. Never cold enough for you to get mad at it. Never warm enough for it to be warm, but always 34 or 38. We'd get up and everything would be wet, clammy, and you'd slowly drag on your fatigues and you'd fall out into the company street in the darkness. We'd stand there lined up and they'd call roll. You'd hear them calling roll for miles around. And then they would dismiss us. And for two and a half minutes, we'd thunder towards the John. 
we'd go roaring into the latrine. And you'd shave, still half asleep. It's now ten minutes past five. And you're shaving with a yellow light bulb. Have you ever seen that, that ridiculous commercial where that guy is shaving, the first sergeant is shaving, and the guy comes in, it's on, on TV now, the guy comes in and says, Say, Sarge, what is that you're using on your face? Yes, I'm using the new amazing substance that does away without shaving cream. Yes, it's amazing, and it's patented. He, they don't talk like that in the latrine at ten minutes after five when they're shaving, about to go on another series of endless obscene, unspeakable details. You just grimly look into the mirror, and once in a while you hear the grunt of somebody who's cut his chin off, and you see the thin spray of blood, a muffled curse, and then that's about it. And then instantly, as, you're, as you're, you, you, you turn on the faucet, and the hot water comes out, and it immediately turns cold. They have thoughtfully heated two quarts of hot water for the entire company. And now you shave in ice-cold water. I don't know whether you've ever done this. Shaving in ice... Oh, for three years I shaved in ice-cold water. Sometimes I shaved in water... I, well, not only ice-cold, but water that had bacilli growing in it. You could see them growing. That had frogs swimming around in it. Uh, you know, water just enough to cover the bottom of a helmet. You know, a little bit there you put in the bottom. We're shaving hour after hour. You know, you just endlessly... And you'd cut yourself and your skin would come off in strips... And then, then you go out into the darkness again. That cold air would hit your, your raw skin. You, you don't care anymore about this, you know. And then you'd go wandering back towards the barracks or the tent. You'd sit for a couple of minutes. And then you'd hear, that's chow. And you'd go slowly through the darkness, through the gray dawn. You'd head towards the mess hall. And what do you smell? You smell grease. You just smell that overwhelming smell of grease and... The, the stove smoke, you know, the smoke out of the stove would be melding with the grease and you'd smell it and you'd smell old rancid powdered milk that had somehow gotten poured down under the, under the mess hall and you'd smell the grease trap and you're drifting in towards your breakfast now and you go in, you stand in the half and they're saving electricity, by the way. They've only got two bulbs lit in there. This long, dark, clammy hall. We'd walk in with our trays and they would hand us They'd hand us one slice of French toast, one half of which is burnt and the other half of which is raw. The egg is dripping off of it. <laughs> they'd give you some watery, some watery maple syrup that they mix up out of, a, out, of a, out of a powder. And you go to the next guy and he slaps down about two ounces of powdered egg, which looks like, uh, looks like gray library paste that somehow old grapes have gotten caught up in it. He throws this down and you go drifting past. You got your cup full of hot coffee and you sit and you... Just sit and eat a little bit. And somebody else says something across from you. You don't hear them. Your ears are ringing. You're still tired. You know, you're tired all the time you're in the Army and the Navy. What, the one thing you want is sleep. You're not really physically tired. You're mentally and every other way tired. And you get that ringing. You know that ringing sound you get in your head all the time from not enough sleep? It's just always ringing. Because at night, you're feeling great. And you want to stay up at night. It's only early in the morning that you want to sleep and that your head is ringing and your eyes is sticking together. You shovel in a little of the French toast and then you fall out, company formation, wearing your dank, rancid fatigues. You've got your helmet on the top of your head. You're wearing your gas mask. You're wearing your leggings. And they're starting to call out the various details. 
All right, you guys start. One, two, three, four. All right, count off six to the left. One, two, three, four, five. All right, you guys get out of the consolidated mess. Uh, Corporal Wisnowski, take him down on the double. Let's go. And you go clomping off down through the darkness on the way to the mess hall. We are going to skin chickens. Or you're going to spend the day on your knees with a, with a piece of stone rubbing the floor. Or you're going to spend your day sitting on top of the latrine barracks tacking down shingles, or you're going to spend your day just sweeping the ground. They'll think of something. Just sweep the ground. Have you ever stood in the cold and just swept the ground all day long? Yeah, that's, yeah, just sweep, just sweeping the ground, or sniping butts, non-existent butts. Not bad enough that you're sniping butts, but you crawl around on the frozen ground picking up butts that aren't there, and they keep following you. So you develop this unbelievable boredom. And then you'd go out at night. Once in a while, you'd get a pass, and you'd walk through town. And you see these happy people driving cars, wearing red and white and green and purple ties. And they're wearing white shirts. And you develop this solemn, kind of sullen... Yeah, it's you and us. It's me against you. And so one night, Gasser and I, after a very bad night at the USO when we couldn't even get near the ping-pong table, we are walking along the boardwalk, and the wind is howling off the sea, and you can hear the shutters rattling on pizza joints that were closed for the duration, and you can smell the ocean, you can smell the sand, and we walk past Gus's tattoo parlor, and it's warm, he's got a yellow light bulb in there, and he's sitting there, you can smell a cigar smell coming out over the, over the boardwalk, we walk about 20 feet past, and Gasser turns to me and says, What do you say? Are you chicken? I said, Chicken for what? He says, How about getting tattooed? I said, Tattooed? It had never occurred to me. Tattooing is what other guys got done to them. I said, Tattooed, huh? He said, Yeah, come on, let's go back and see what. I wonder how much it costs. I said, I don't know. He said, let's go back. So we got 10 minutes before the bus comes. And the bus is over there. You can see that, that Greyhound, that, that miserable bus station that took us back to those tents every night and brought us from the tents to Long Branch the next day, the next evening. And so we go into Gus's place, and Gus is sitting there looking at us. He says, come in, boys. Come right in. You like some coffee? Gasser says, no. How much does it cost to get tattooed? And Gus says, well, it depends on what you want to have tattooed on you, soldier. He knew exactly how to treat us. And I said, how, how much is that big, uh, that big green heart over there? He says, well, of course, you know, green hearts cost more than red ones. It's more difficult to do. This is because uh, green has a tendency to fade out around the edges. That green heart will be $7. That is, unless you want a name on it. I said, yeah. And at that time, I was going with a girl just very weakly. You know how when, you, when you're in the Army, you see a girl once every couple of months, just vaguely at the USO. I was going with a girl who lived in Keensburg, New Jersey. Her name was Dolores. And so <laughs> I said to Gus, how much would Dolores cost? And he says, well, of course, you realize that we charge by the letter. Dolores, how does she spell it? 
Mrs. Dolores. D-O-L-O-R-E-S, I guess. He says, let's see, D-O-L, Dolores. Uh, let's see, that's uh, 75 cents a letter. Cost for that. Unless you want it in colored letters. He says, that's black. He says, no, I'd like it in red on the green. And he says, well, that's, of course, a dollar then. I'll pay a dollar extra for each letter. Hmm. I'm thinking about that. And Gasser says, how much is that, that gun over there? With the, with the vines twisted on it that say, I love you forever, mother. He said, well, that I can do because we do that one quite often. That one is only $5. And Gasser looked at me, and I looked at Gasser. And Gasser says, uh, how long would it take you? And he says, oh, not too long. And Gasser sat down and rolled up his sleeve. And with that, the man brought out this great big tray with thousands of needles. Have you ever seen how they do it? With long, thin bottles full of green and yellow and red and purple ink. Yes. And he plugged it in, and it started to go, oh, there was a little hum of a motor. Well, off in the distance, we could hear, we could hear a horn tooting. It is the bus getting ready to go. Gasser good up. He stood up all of a sudden with his sleeve rolled up and said, listen, we'll be back next Tuesday. The bus is leaving. The guy says, don't forget now, next Tuesday. And both of us went out into the darkness. I had my sleeve already rolled up. I was going to have a green heart with Dolores and red on the side, you know, the whole thing. I was going to show her this at the USO the next week. I knew that if I showed her this, she couldn't resist that, you know? Well, we got out in the darkness, and we got on that bus, and we rode off towards Camp Leonard Wood. Both of us missed being tattooed by a split second. Had that bus not tooted to this very day, I would have had a girl in Kingsburg's name inscribed on my left shoulder blade on a green heart in red letters. Gasser would have had a 45 caliber Colt revolver with a green set of grape leaves growing off of it that simply said, I love you, Mother. We little know what we'll do under the press.